turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Um, Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. We've reached the end of chapter 1 and it's only March. So uh, this is great. We're going to look at this little paragraph that ends the chapter beginning at verse 27 and going through verse 30. I'll, I'll begin reading at 27. He says, Paul, Paul writes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is an interesting, very interesting paragraph. And in one sense, the, the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul is writing to the Philippian Christians, it changes right now at verse 27. It begins to change. And it starts there in the, with the word only. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But the way he, the way he starts that with that word only, he, he's saying, okay, there's one thing. See, he said a lot already, and he's, he said a lot about himself, and we've, lot of, we've learned a lot about the Lord and about even our walk with God as Paul's talked about himself, his praying for them, his experience and things that are happening and the way he's looking at it all. But then he turns and he, he looks at the Philippians, the Christians, and he says, now, now let's get one thing straight, only this, only this. You've got to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul says. And some commentators think that really the rest of the book is an explanation of what that means. Everything that follows fits under this heading. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now there's an interesting, there's an interesting little... Uh, translation issue going on here. You, you know the New Testament was written in Greek and uh, so it's put into English. And this phrase here that says, let your manner of life, your manner of life, what's the Greek word underneath there? Now if I ever, if I ever pronounce a Greek word for you, it's, it's usually, it's just, there's really only one reason to do it. Well, there's, there's another one. The word agape for agape love is well known, so sometimes I use that. But if I quote a Greek word to you, it's not to impress you with my great knowledge of Greek because I've forgotten more than I've remembered. But it's because sometimes you can hear in the Greek word an English word. It's an English word that's come from that word and it'll help you understand it. Now, the, the Greek word that underlies your manner of life is the word politio. Politio. Politics. How do you like that? 
It comes from the word that we get, we get our word politics from this. And what it's referring to is your, your participation in uh, the, the, the group of people that you're a part of. In other words, it's your citizenship. Some English translations actually will put that in here and says, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, why would Paul say that here? Why would he say, exercise your citizenship or, uh, or live as citizens? Why would he say that here? Well, one reason might be that Philippi was a Roman colony. Not every town out there was a Roman colony. A, a colony of Rome meant that it was like a miniature Rome. The laws of Rome, the privileges, the responsibilities, that was all true inside the little, the, the town of Philippi. And it wasn't true of the surrounding towns. Actually, what happened was, way back in Rome's history, there was a decisive battle fought at Philippi, where, in the eyes anyway of the Roman government, the good guys won. So they rewarded Philippi as this place where they won this battle. They made it into a Roman colony. So now they're citizens of Rome, those who are part of Philippi. Interesting that later in the book, turn to chapter 3, verse 20. Some of you already know it's coming, don't you? Look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, say, he pulled this little word out that's used in the Greek and he's, he's talking to them not so much about being citizens of, of Rome but as being citizens of heaven. And perhaps he's reminding them as proud citizens there of Philippi that there's another citizenship that they hold. And that's what they have to, to think about the most. And they have to conduct themselves worthy not of Rome but worthy of the gospel. And he says, only this now, listen to me, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the citizenship that you've got, that citizenship which transcends being a citizen of Rome. You're a citizen of heaven. And, and you've got to live with your focus on the gospel and all that that means for you. You live that way. One scholar said this, he said, so this community, meaning the church there, this community's life must have as its rule the gospel of Christ. Paul's basic preoccupation then in these verses remains the same as in the previous section. Just as all of his own actions were determined with reference to the gospel, so it should be with his readers. And we've seen that, haven't we? Everything about Paul was about living in terms of what the gospel required of him, even if it meant suffering. And now he's turning it around on the Philippians and saying it's the same way for you too. It's not just because I'm an apostle. You've got to live this way too. You've got to have the gospel central in your life. You've got to live worthy of the gospel. As I've studied this passage, I, I see at least five, five components, five components to living worthy of the gospel. And I'd like to share them with you this morning. First of all, to live worthy of the gospel, you must refuse to retreat from your testimony. 
You've got to refuse to retreat from your testimony. Look again at verse 27. It says, Only let the manner, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. You got that? Standing firm. There's a lot in our life. There's a lot about the culture in which we live. There's a lot about the society that we're a part of that wants to push us back off of living worthy of the gospel. Or am I the only one that's noticed that? Amen? We, we face all sorts of pressures to push us back and to make us retreat from a testimony that says, I, I'm a follower of Christ and all that that means I am committed to. Turn, turn with me. I want you to turn back here to Proverbs chapter 2. We're going to come back to Philippians. This will be on page 528 if you're using one of our Bibles. Proverbs chapter 2. And when I first start reading this, you might be wondering how this fits, but it, it fits. Proverbs 2 verse 1. It says here, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we have a picture of a person, a man or a woman, who's, who's seeking hard after God and who wants to know God and wants to live rightly. It says, if you seek the Lord and you seek that wisdom, God will grant it to you. And it comes from God. It doesn't come somewhere, from somewhere else. It comes from God. And then notice the change then that occurs. Look at verse 9. The change that occurs in you. It says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. You see, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've, you've believed the gospel, you realize then that that gospel changes your life. Amen? Now you start to see clearer. You start to understand what actually is right and is wrong. What you ought to value and, and, and not value. And you start to walk, as it says here in verse 9, in every good path. Righteousness, justice, equity. The good path means something to you. And in living worthy of the gospel, you start to live that way. You, you change. But watch what happens. Because not everybody around you is on the same path. Amen? Look at verse 10. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Guard me from what? Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness 
of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Those are the people that we live with. Amen? Those are the people that we work with. Those are the people that are in our society. We live in the middle of those people who, are, who delight in darkness while we're trying to walk in righteousness on the good path. And guess what happens? Pressure. And the pressure comes for us to back off from our testimony. The pressure comes for us to not live worthy of the gospel but to give in and to back up because of what we're feeling from other people. But in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, it, we're being told, stand firm. Part of living worthy of the gospel is you don't retreat from your testimony. You don't back up. I read of a banker, and this story... Uh, I think it was in the 1980s, so that, for some of you, that seems like a long time ago. For me, it was just around the corner. But I, wanna, I heard about this, he, he, I read about a banker. Let, let, me, let me just read it to you, that way I'll get it right. A banker was in charge of an influential branch of a large bank, and I believe this was in Philadelphia, although I'm not sure. A policy developed in the bank that vice presidents were to encourage business by entertaining lavishly at the bank's expense. Important customers were to be given a round of nightclubs, shows, and so on. The Christian banker did not think this was the proper conduct for a Christian, nor did he think this was the right way to do business. He felt like banking was best done in a sober mood during banking hours. By operating on this principle, his bank, his branch, had flourished. Yet his convictions stuck in the throat of the management. There came a time when they would not take it any longer. They sent him home for two months, put someone else in his place, and two months later rehired him for another position where he could not cause them trouble. This stuff happens, does it not? And you felt it. And, and, and this man, I, I applaud him, and he, he just didn't want to back up. He wanted to stand firm in his testimony. There's a hundred different ways you can be called on to sacrifice your morals, your ethics, your integrity, your honesty, your compassion on people. A hundred, maybe a thousand different ways you can be pushed on to sacrifice all of that for something else. But Philippians says, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't retreat from your testimony. Before we go on, I just want to ask, as we've talked about this so far, right now, has God, has God nudged you? about something at work or perhaps it's something at school or something you're doing with your neighbors that is not worthy of the gospel that would cause people to scratch their heads in confusion if they heard that you were a citizen of heaven a representative of heaven's values and yet you do that? If so, if God has nudged you on that this morning is your opportunity to get that straight. 
And I would urge you, don't leave the room until you've surrendered to the Lord. And you say, Lord, forgive me. I ask your forgiveness. I repent of that. I'm going to turn around. And that's in my past now. I'm walking out that door different. I'm not going to retreat from my testimony. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the second. Let's think of the second component now. The second component is to press the gospel forward. If we want to, to uh, live worthy of the gospel, we need to press the gospel forward. Again, look at verse 27. Um, it says, I, I, whether I'm, I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving for the faith of the gospel. That word striving is a word that's used concerning fighting or, or um, perhaps even an athletic contest or, or military. They're, you're contending. You know, sometimes the pressure is so much that all we can do is stand firm. Amen? Sometimes if we just stand firm and don't retreat, we've won. Sometimes it's like that. But all along, even in those times, our real aim is not to even just to stand firm, it's to step forward. And it's to push the gospel forward. And to see God work as the gospel goes forward. As we've seen this all through chapter 1. And you remember the very first time we looked at Philippians, the very first sermon was about the movement of the gospel. Do you remember that? That the gospel's moving. Philippians gives us a picture of God moving with the gospel. And so we want to press the gospel forward. <clears throat> the faith of the gospel. Notice down in verse 32. Well, let me read 29 also. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict. You see that word conflict? The same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's a, there's a contest going on. There's a conflict that we're engaged in. There's a, there's, a, there's a goal that's out there in the front and we are a part of it and we're to be pressing the gospel forward. I've mentioned this before, but next year, in 2014, we're going to have a great big birthday party. It's going to be our church's 125th birthday. Is that cool? I was going to make a joke about which one of you were here for the first birthday of the church, but I... 125 years old, our church will be next year. And in that big party that we're going to have... We're going to, it's our prayer now, is that we will have also, we're going to look backward, but we're going to look forwards. And we're, we're, we're going to have a vision, and we're calling it the Vision 2020. So it's going to be the vision of what we sense God leading us as a church to pursue between that point and the year 2020. Amen? Does this sound good? Good. And as... Your senior pastor, I've already begun this 
praying, thinking, and then as pastors together, and then elders, and then we're going to involve you, you know, we're, we're but from now until that, the, our birthday party, we are, and especially me, I, I, we're just praying and thinking forward and asking God, give us a vision, O oh Lord, for what you want to do through us. And I told you this before. I've said this. Every time we pick a book of the Bible to, to preach through, I say the same thing. When we're praying about what book to choose, we have certain reasons that make sense for why to choose it. But every time, as we get into the book later and as the months go by, we see other reasons why God had us in that book. And now I can see it. That God would have us in the book of Philippians at the time that we're seeking from him vision for the future. And I believe that this is part of the vision, my friend. This is why God wants us in Philippians. Because he wants us to be a part of the movement of the gospel in the Lehigh Valley and around the world, especially in unreached people groups. Amen? Our vision is not just going to be inward. I know what my belly button looks like. I don't have to have a vision. So let's, let's spend the next six years till 2020 looking at our belly buttons. Our vision has to be out. There are lost people in the Lehigh Valley. There, there, there are lost people around the world. And we have the message. We have the gospel that they need. Amen? And so let's pray together. And I'm saying this to you would pray for me, that you would pray for your leaders, and you would pray all together. I mean, as the months go on, we're going to involve other people in all of this, but that God would lead us and give us a vision for how he wants us to be a part of pressing the gospel forward. Amen and amen. Okay, third. Third component of living worthy of the gospel, and that is to seek unity with other believers to seek unity with other believers this comes around three different ways and still in verse 27 it says i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit <clears throat> the you is plural that you all are standing firm but you all are standing firm in one spirit there's one spirit there and then it says with one mind striving and then it says side by side we're striving side by side like soldiers in the battle line for the faith of the gospel there's a lot of us there's multiple people we look at things differently we're, we're, we're different in a lot of ways but we've got we we've got the gospel and we have one spirit and one mind and we're side by side my friends this is one of the main themes of the book of Philippians I told you last week a lot of people read the book quickly and say the main theme of Philippians is joy. A theme of the book of Philippians is joy. But it's not the main theme. Now we're getting real close to it here. The, one of the main themes of Philippians is that we learn. That we learn that our Christian life is not a life that we live by ourselves, But it's a life that we live with each other. And that, and that God takes us together. And, and uses us for his purposes. It's stunning. Once your blinders are off. 
to see this in the book of Philippians. If you took this aspect of living together and relating well with one another and being towards each other the way we ought to be, if you took that out of Philippians, the whole book would fall apart. It's there. It's so, it's so strong. You know, we have blinders on us as um, being American Christians at this time in our history. We think so often in terms of the individual. And it's true that, you see, we get saved as individuals. Amen? Nobody else saves you. We don't get saved as a group. Every person that gets saved gets saved individually as he or she trusts in Jesus Christ. I could hear an amen for that. Could I hear an amen? Yeah, okay. But once you've individually trusted with trusted Christ, you've found yourself immediately part of a family. And now we go together. That's the way the Bible puts it. James Boyce, a late pastor from, from uh, Philadelphia, he said this. He said, unfortunately, evangelical churches are not known for standing together. In fact, the opposite is true. Instead of an honest attempt to join hands across denominational, racial, and cultural barriers for the furtherance of common goals, Christians have all too often sought to tear down those who do not agree with them, even on the most insignificant matters. This dishonors Christ. Moreover, it hinders the preaching of the gospel. In place of those divisions, Christians should know a unity that is visible and has practical results. You know, I had, a, I, had an exciting, I had an exciting occurrence this week. I went to the LCA Pastor's Day. Our Lehigh Christian Academy, every year they have a Pastor's Day where it's actually really fun because all the kids from our church huddled around me and John King. We were there like Pied Piper. And, um, and they gave us a tour of the school. I'd never seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they gave us this tour and we walked around with all these little, you know, ankle biters and some that were a little bitter. And we had a great time. And then we all ate lunch together and all the other pastors with their little groups. We ate lunch in the activity center and I and I and I looked around and there's all these pastors different races, different denominations, different, you know, different people. And 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 I thought I was thinking about all of the congregations that are represented there and, and all of the potential. What is God doing in the Lehigh Valley? Amen? And if we're fighting each other, it ain't going to get done, what God wants to do. But if we have a unity of purpose and of mind and a, and a graciousness with each other, then, then much can be done for the gospel. We need to seek unity with other believers. First of all, I think we need to seek unity right here among ourselves. If we ourselves in our own church are fighting each other, well, well, we, we got, well, wait, time out. Let's take care of that because we're going nowhere. We're going to go nowhere with that. And then secondly, I'm not suggesting that we all have to dissolve our denominational distinctions and become one church of Allentown. That's not going to happen. We have distinctions that we think are important, and that's, that's okay, actually. But let's not look askew at another brother or sister because they're in such and such a church. 
if they've believed Jesus Christ themselves and they, they are Christians, they've been born again just like you have, what's my problem? Amen? I can love that person. They can love me. We, we get, we'll, we'll get along fine. And it's okay. They'll worship in their church. I'll worship in mine. That's okay. But when it comes to the workplace, when it comes to out there in the Lehigh Valley, we don't have to draw our lines and, and, and be separate. We need to be together so that the non-Christians look at us and say, what's different about you guys? Amen? We need to seek unity with other believers. That's what Paul is saying. And that's a vital part of living worthy of the gospel. Okay, fourth. Fourth component of living worthy of the gospel. Fourth component is be courageous. Look at verse 28. It says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We can assume that some of the outward persecution that Paul had in Philippi and that he was now experiencing in Rome might also have been ex being experienced right then by the Christians in, in Philippi. And, and Paul is saying, don't be afraid. Be courageous. And when you're not frightened by your opponents, those who are the opponents of the gospel, it does something. It's your courage in the face of persecution and resistance and, and trouble that comes your way. The pressure. Your courage is a sign. It's a sign from God. And it does two things. This sign, first of all, it says, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. You just be confident and in the Lord and be courageous and stand firm and that's a sign to them that you know in the end you're going to lose amen I don't mean it personal to you buddy but you're going to lose you're on the wrong side and then it does something else and this is from God it does something for you as you stand there in your confidence that God gives you and you, you're not afraid in the face of the pressure God is confirming in your own heart. He says, you know, you are, you are saved. Amen? Because you, you see it. You see what it says in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I listened to a brother, a Romanian pastor. His name is Joseph Tson, T-S-O-N. He had been trained in this, he had, he had been out of the country, trained as a pastor and theologically, and he went back to co then communist ruled Romania, knowing that, that he was going to get in trouble, but he went back anyway. In 1977, he was arrested on a Sunday before he got to church. On Monday, on that Monday, there were two men that were interrogating him. And then at lunchtime, um, a general in the army came into the room, nodded to the other two. They left the room. And the general came up to him and began mercilessly beating him. Beat him so hard, one time his head hit the wall behind, behind him. He thought he had cracked his head open. And he just beat him without a word. And then he left. 
And then the two other guys came in and then just sat there and started interrogating him again as if nothing had happened. On Thursday of that, of that week, the same routine was happening. The two men were there and then they left at lunchtime and the general came in again. Pastor Joseph braced himself because he thought he was going to get beaten again. And the general said, don't worry, this time I came to talk to you. So he sat down opposite Joseph. And Joseph, in testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit in him, he said this. He said, Mr. General, I want to apologize for what happened on Monday. <laughs> the, gen <laughs> the general, <laughs> he says, let me explain. He says, on Tuesday, they kept me here all day long. I had time to think and pray and as I was thinking it dawned on me this is the holy week leading up to Easter you beat me in the holy week you know sir I am sorry for screaming I should have thanked you for the most beautiful gift you could have ever given me you beat me in the holy week sir that is the most beautiful thing I suffered when my Lord suffered Thank you for the beating. The general was speechless, as you would expect. And what was happening right then? What was God doing? There was a sign. Amen? And that sign was, General, you're on the wrong side. Your side is going to lose. And, and, and then on the inside of him, he is sensing a fresh that I am made right with the living God. And he has saved me. And this is real. This is real stuff. I'm walking with the living Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, whenever you see, whoever you see as an opponent of the gospel, just don't be afraid. And as you take that position... You'll find that God will solidify your own faith. And he's also, he's doing something to the other person. There's a declaration going on to that other person. And some of those people will turn and come to Christ. Some, many of them won't, but some will. Do you remember who's written this letter? Paul, what was he doing before he was converted? He was tracking down and torturing and actually joyously executing Christians. And I can't help but think that some of that's going through his mind here. Because he saw it. The sign was declared to him when he was on the wrong side. And, and in his case, God used that sign and turned him around. And he became the Apostle Paul instead of Saul, the persecutor of the church. If you want to live worthy, if I want to live worthy of the gospel, we have to be courageous. Amen? Don't be afraid. And then lastly, fifthly, fifthly, we need to accept suffering. Let me read again verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had 
and now here that I still have. There's an amazing word here. This, he says there in verse 29, it's saying, for it has been granted to you. This is a gift. It's actually, that's the word. It actually has the word, for the, the Greek word for grace in it. This is a grace gift to you. What? What's this grace gift that you get to suffer for Christ? Oh, I'm not sure I want that gift. <laughs> it's, like, it's like being around the Christmas tree and, you, and it has this great wrapping and you open it up and you think, ah, I don't really want this. God's, God's saying, well, it doesn't matter, I gave it to you. Here it goes. Listen, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when that comes your way. It's a grace gift. Then later he said, still the words of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the nations do the same? You see, we... In living worthy of the gospel, the message of a gracious God who sends his son to pay the redemption's price with his own blood for people who hated him. To live worthy of that gospel, we must accept suffering when it comes our way and love the people that do it to us. Easier said than done. But when, when God's people are put in that position, God gives grace and they respond. In 1984, Mehdi Dibaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on the charges of apostasy, of converting from Islam to Christianity. He languished in prison for 10 years until his case was tried in 1994. Some of the last lines of his written defense reads this way. This is what our brother wrote in his defense. Jesus in Iran. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. 
Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Well, that brother was sentenced to execution. But because of pressure by the U.S. State Department, he was released. But after his release, his body was found in a park in Tehran. He was murdered. Blessed are you, you if you were persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. To live worthy of the gospel... We need to accept the gift when it comes our way. The gift that we don't particularly want. But in it, in it, there is the grace. There is grace from God. To live worthy of the gospel, you must refuse to retreat from your testimony. You must press the gospel forward. You must seek unity with other believers. You must be courageous. And you must accept suffering. Which of these has had the touch of God on it this morning in your life? It may be a different one for you than the person sitting right next to you. But surely God has whispered something to you this morning. Where in all of what we've discussed this morning has been the the issue that you have with God? Let him have his way in your life. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you and we, we worship you. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our Romanian brother and our Iranian brother and for what you have done in their lives. I, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his faithfulness. And we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ who above all has suffered for us who is the gospel and and has accomplished for us the forgiveness of our sins and the and the reality that now we can live with the fullness of the holy spirit to honor you with our lives to live indeed worthy of the gospel father these words this morning are easy to say They're not so easy to live. Give us the grace, I pray, to respond to you. And where you have touched our lives, we just want to say to you, even right now, Lord, that we submit. We submit to your will. And we ask this morning, O Lord, that we would leave those things behind that are holding us back this morning as we leave this this room. That we would just leave them here at your feet. And that you would take us and use us. That we might live worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.